Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. Thank you all for subscribing on iTunes and following me on social at Primalosophy. If you're a new fire recruit or firefighter, just shoot me a message at Primalosophy.com and I'll teach you everything you need to know for career-long well-being. My guest today is Alex Hutchinson. Alex is a National Magazine award-winning journalist who writes about the science of endurance for runner's world and outside. He frequently contributes to other publications such as the New York Times and the New Yorker. A former long-distance runner for the Canadian national team, he holds a master's in journalism from Columbia and a PhD in physics from Cambridge. In this episode, we talk about Alex's latest book, Endure. Mind, body, and the curiously elastic limits of human performance. We discover that limits are just an illusion. Enjoy. Awesome. So for those who are a little bit less familiar with you and your work, just give me a little bit about your background and what you do currently. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I would describe myself as a, as a science journalist, and, and sometimes I make it more broad. I'm a journalist. Sometimes I get more specific. I, I've sort of fallen into being an endurance science journalist, so I write a lot about uh, fitness and health specifically in the context of, you know, endurance sports activities like running and, and cycling and things like that. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, the broadest thing is a science journalist. I'm a freelancer. So I write for a bunch of different publications. Most, most of all these days for outside magazine. Uh, and I'm a former runner, which kind of influences my, uh, my outlook and my activities and uh, a former physicist, which also sort of influences the way I look at the world and, and the kinds of information or the, or the way I try to analyze information. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So what have you had to kind of rethink throughout your careers when it comes to endurance training? Yeah, there's been a bunch of things. I mean, if, if we're, if we're talking about endurance training specifically, I guess one, one, so I, I would say I, I've been a science journalist for the last, gosh, uh, you know, 15 years, let's say 14 or 15 years. And, uh, and before that I was a competitive athlete. I ran for the Canadian national team. And I, when I started writing about the science of fitness and health and endurance training, I thought I was going to get a lot of really solid answers that I would finally be, no, like what workout should I do when to make my me as fast as possible? And and when I started out doing that sort of writing, I w- anytime I saw a study, I would I would write about it as if it was the gospel. Like, oh, thank goodness we finally know you know how long you should warm down for and you know at what intensity. And it took me a little while before you know I'd have written a bunch of these articles. Then I'd come come across another article uh, you know a year or two later that would give a different answer, and I think. Uh, oh, uh, you know, mm-hmm. t- last year I was saying do X. Now this is saying do Y. And so I, I guess the biggest change from a, from a high level point of view in, in my perspective is that I'm now much more cautious about integrating different sources of information and respecting the importance of experience. So if someone comes to me and asks me, I, I'm tra- I want to train for a marathon, what's the best way of training? The answer that I would give them would, would be founded a lot more on the trial and error experiences of runners of this and previous generations than on a study. Absolutely. So you are more of a fan of the N equals one experiments. Well, you know, don't let me push the pendulum too far the other way. I mean, my whole I'm a my my whole shtick is that I'm all about the evidence that I want to know what the evidence tells us. Mm -hmm. But I just am very or much more cognizant than I used to be that that doesn't give us the whole answer. That that science gives us some really interesting information, but it doesn't answer all our questions. 
uh, and and so we shouldn't throw away all the other forms of inf- information. But like you said, I also I also think you have to find out what works for you. That science will tell you what, on average, is most helpful in in in, any, in some particular domain or activity. But there's always a spread, and you might be someone who responds really strongly to that stimulus or doesn't respond at all. And there's also a lot of noise out there and a lot of shitty science. How can we kind of get through the weeds and know that it's a trusted source? Yeah, this is a, a I would say, a increasing problem. So when I when I started writing about you know the science of exercise t- uh, ten or fifteen years ago, my sense was that there wasn't a whole lot of that information out there. At least I I, I hadn't been aware of. I didn't realize how much research was going on about exercise, and that there were all these studies coming out all the time that were trying to answer some of these questions. And I thought, man, this is this is great. We need to be able to translate this so more of us can get access to it. It was a sort of scarcity time of like any scientific information was good. I think we we're now in a sort of opposite uh, situation where we have way too much information that claims to be science based and every, you know, anything anyone says on the internet it's like and it's backed by a study, a peer reviewed study. Mm-hmm. And and the problem is there there like you're suggesting that there's both a lot of information that's bad even in even peer reviewed studies a lot of them are crap. So, you know, it's I, w- I wish I had like a, a you know a three-step process to know whether the information you're you're looking at is good or bad. But I think um, it requires a, you know some careful, uh, almost detective work of like you read an article. Okay, who wrote this article? What is what are, are they selling something? Uh, you know what is their background? What, what how much time have they spent in this? Are they just someone who's looking for clicks? Or are they? Um, or do they have a history as someone who's, you know, examining multiple sides of perspectives? So you kind of have to dig into where the information is coming from, both the person who's telling you the information and where they got the information from. Like, are they reporting on a study that was, uh, you know, conducted by the manufacturer of this particular supplement? Or, um, and, you know, was it published in, you know, Joe's Science Journal or in, in one that has, uh, you know, higher standards? So there's no easy answer, but yet you just have to. I, I would say, as a default, start by being skeptical, and and you know, mm-hmm. and and I, and in some ways, the probably the the most important, maybe maybe not the most important, but one answer is that old journalism staple, which is follow the money. Just be aware if if the the person who's telling you this is is getting rich if you believe whatever they write. Right, and one thing that I think is overlooked is when people do get the science wrong, but then they admit that because science is ever-changing and growing and improving. So if they fall on their sword and tell you, hey, I had this wrong at one point, let me tell you what the new science that is emerging is telling us. Yeah, I mean, I think that's in, in, that's a really funny thing because I would say almost the, the best indication that you're you're reading something from someone who is going to give you trustworthy information is if you look back and you find that they've admitted they're wrong sometimes because that's really hard to do and I say that from personal experience there's things I've written that I uh, you know where my my understanding has changed as more science has come out and it's really it's it's remarkable how even when you know that this is happening it's remarkable how hard it is to 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 force yourself to change your opinion to admit oh I I'm sorry I I you know this is what I thought before now I've changed my mind you 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 find yourself rationalizing that oh maybe this new study is wrong there must be something wrong with it because it's disagreeing with what I thought so yeah I think that's an excellent point that the willingness to change your mind in the face of new evidence is a really great sign of someone who's really just trying to find the information and trying to find the best answers. Yeah, I think we can all kind of tell we have that gut gut instinct when someone's trying to do right and do their best. 
Yeah, and hopefully, hopefully that comes through when when you're reading someone's work, and you can see are they trying to. I guess another, you know, admitting you're wrong is a good sign. A bad sign is if you don't spot any signs of doubt. If they're like, "Great news, guys! I've figured everything out. I have all the answers. You're you're going to be, you know, you're going to live forever. It's going to be so wonderful." Be skeptical if if someone is not uh, sort of uh, if they don't have some humility about. Well, here's what I think. Here's what the evidence suggests, but we don't know the final answer. Because the truth is, anyone who tells you they have the final answers right now, uh, in my opinion, at least they're 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 fooling at least themselves and maybe you too. Absolutely. So talk to me about your latest book, Indoor. I mean, what was it that made you write this book? What is different from these other running books out there? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the the basic question that I was trying to tackle and endure is what defines our limits. We know when you reach the point where you can't go any farther, you can't maintain your effort, you can't keep going. Uh, what what precisely is it that's holding you back? And and this comes from my experience as a competitive runner. Sort of, you finish a race and as soon as you cross the line, you think, oh, I should have been able to go faster. I wasn't maxed out. What what was? Why didn't I go faster? Why didn't I catch that guy? And the conventional answer is is well, you know, my VO2 max wasn't high enough, or or you know, my fast twitch fibers were were exhausted, or my lactate threshold was too too low. Um, but what over the last ten or fifteen years, I'd say there's been a lot of interest in in how the brain plays a role in defining these limits. So I wanted to explore the mind's role in in setting our limits. And so one thing the book is not is you know, seven lessons on how to run a faster marathon or, or, or a faster 5k or anything like that. I really tried to stay away from just sort of training advice because once you start uh, committing yourself to, uh, you know, uh, making a practical training guide, you end up, I think, almost without meaning it, at least my experience is, you, you end up then trying to interpret all the evidence you come across, all the science, in order to support your training advice. So I, I wanted this to be the sort of, not the, the training advice book, not the sort of marathon training plan, but instead a look behind the training plans and, and to, to, to try and dig into what, what it is we're experiencing when we're out there in any sort of sustained exercise context, pushing our limits and, and what, what's the battle we're fighting against and, and how can we win that battle or, or at least change that battle. What did you find the battle to be? Because I, w- I would imagine it's like going against our evolutionary nature to try to survive and not go overboard and wreck our bodies. That way, you know, we're succumbed to illness and injury. Yeah, I think so. I, I, in, in keeping with what I said a few questions ago, I'll say I don't know the answers here. That there's a lot of, de- and I don't think any scientists do either. There's a ton of debate. There's a ton of very vigorous debate about about exactly what's going on here. But I think in the big picture, it's 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 basically what you said that. It's, you know, if picture the Olympic marathon, the guy who comes second place by a few seconds, he doesn't drop dead. He, he gets the line. He's missed out on immortality by three seconds or something. And he just keeps jogging. He's like, oh, well, ne- next time. And so that's kind of one of the examples people use as, as to, to suggest that even when we're pushing as hard as we can and motivation is maximal, something prevents us from pushing right to the point where our bodies fail. And there's been some. There's a guy named Tim Noakes who proposed an idea called the central governor model back mm-hmm. in the '90s, where the, the idea there was it's like, well, if you really pushed as hard as you could, you'd 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 be pushing so hard that your muscles would use up so so much oxygen that your heart wouldn't get enough oxygen, and you'd you know you'd do yourself permanent damage or you'd keel over and die. But the shift, like you said, has been increasingly towards a more evolutionary perspective to say that there were very good reasons that you know when we were chasing antelopes across the savanna. 
we didn't just keep chasing them until we fell over because the people who did that didn't make it back to the campfire that night to pass on their genes. So we have this very strong behavioral pattern that makes it harder. The closer we get to our limits, the more we have the desire to slow down or stop. And so I think if you were to ask me, what's the ma- after all this research, what's the master key that defines our limits? I would say it's not something physiological. It's not muscle fibers or lactate. It's it's our subjective perception of effort, which scientists design as the or define as the the struggle to continue against a mounting desire to stop. Mm-hmm. So we're we're constantly fighting that against that desire to stop, and ultimately when the feeling gets too great, that's what slows us down. Right, especially if it's something that you don't enjoy. It's like for a lot of people, you know, when they first start wanting to lose weight or to get in shape, they start jogging, and then they work themselves up to a couple miles a day. But then a lot of people just hate it. But still, they push through when they could find maybe some other form of exercise that they enjoy more. Absolutely, and that's why there's there isn't this this sort of this idea that there's one subjective limit. I mean, even for for a given person, your limits one day might be different from your limits on another day, uh, and that might depend on what your, your your frame of mind, your mood, whether you're having a good time. I mean, obviously, there's other things like motivation. You know, you know, if there's a crowd watching you or someone who's important to you, but also just yeah, if you're if you're if you're into it and you're enjoying it, you're able and willing to push much farther into those reserves than if you're if you're there unwillingly and, and just hating it. How do you think your focus has shifted over time, you know, from an amateur mindset to a more professional mindset of balancing stress and rest accordingly? Yeah, so it, that's an interesting question because I, 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 as my knowledge has increased, my my context has also changed. So 20 years ago, I I knew a lot less but I was absolutely, you know, I, I was willing to do anything to get faster and to sort of, in other words, to manage my training better. Uh, and, uh, you know, well, if that meant going to bed at uh, 8.30 every night, then then so be it. N- now, I think I have a much, um, I, 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 I probably know a lot more about or understand a lot more about how to balance things like stress and recovery. But at the same time, my athletic goals have changed. I'm a mid-40s guy who, who trains hard because I enjoy it, not because I have serious competitive goals. And I'm also balancing a young family and a job and things like that. So there's probably more times now where I'm doing things that I know I shouldn't, like, you know, maybe staying up late to hit a deadline uh, that I wouldn't, even, even though I know better. So I have more knowledge now, but it's, it's um, you know, I think we always have to be aware that uh, the, the real world is, is, is a lot more complicated than, than the theoretical ideas we, we think and write about. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I try to, I, I, I'm, I guess, I think I would say I'm pretty good at, um, you know, knowing when to say, uh, this is too much. I'm just going to have to relax now. It's, it, it's better for me to just chill out rather than try and make this article I'm working on perfect by staying up to the middle of the night. Uh, so I, I do pretty well at that, but we also have to recognize that we're never going to be perfect. And so it's not about beating ourselves up when we, when we make decisions that are maybe not optimal. Right. Absolutely. So how have your goals kind of changed throughout the years? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess I would, <laughs> until, until my late twenties, uh, all I really cared about was, was running faster. And I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating here. I also wanted to be a good person and, <laughs> you know, uh, not starve to death and things like that. But my, my number one goal was to run faster and everything, including my schooling and my job and, uh, you know, my, my friendships and relationships took a, took a backseat to trying to run faster. And I wouldn't necessarily, necessarily recommend that as a, as a sort of way to live your life. But, um, 
to a certain extent, it, you know, it's a little bit necessary. You you, you don't uh, to to really get into the sort of uh, extreme edge of performance often requires sacrificing balance a little bit. So I I, I had fun doing that. It was a good. I wouldn't want to live my whole life like that but but yeah so at that point it was just running faster then in my 30s you know i i so i switched i i i sort of stepped back from serious athletic competition when i was 28 and changed careers to from physics to journalism and so i was starting out as a as a journalism student when i was 28 and 29 and an intern when i was 30 so then my 30s were about trying to, the the show focus shifted to i wanted to learn to be a journalist and sort of get my career uh on track for that decade and and so and it was fun you know it was fun to have a completely new challenge and my goal was to get new opportunities and write in interesting places and do fun stories and that was my 30s and then when i was 40 i had my my first daughter and so when i i know i was my 38 i had my first daughter and 40 i had my second daughter and uh that's another shift in priorities right like so I'm, i'm still really I, I none of I haven't like abandoned my previous goals. I still I still train every day and and I enjoy competing. I'm still serious about my career and want to become a better journalist. But uh, you know if 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 you're if it's like elimination, you only have time to do one thing today. Uh, now it's making sure my you know my daughters are ready for school and 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 taking them there and and uh, um, you know putting putting their needs first in a lot of cases. Yeah, for sure. Is there a way that we can still train, you know, hard and want to reach these goals, but without killing ourselves or having the, those long-term effects of chronic cardio or chronic training patterns? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's, I mean, there's a couple of different issues um, uh, in terms of one, one of them is, is is simple time management. And, you know, is there a way to train? If I wanted to at 43, could I train the way I trained at 23? Um I, I mean, I could, but it would uh, it would put a serious strain on both my relationship and my career, and my and and my parenting, um, you know, role. So it's it's a question of choices, right? And like you said, like you said, the the goals change as time goes on. So I'm it's not that I can't. And so if some if someone's you know if someone says that there's just not enough hours in the day to do X Y, usually that's not really true. Usually, what they're saying and what I'm saying is I've made a choice to downregulate my training, and so. I, I get out every day, but sometimes if I'm busy, it's like, okay, I can, I've got 23 minutes before I need to be back to, to take my kids to school. I'm going to do a 23 minute run today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, you know, I would have laughed at a 23 minute run 20 years ago. I would have, that's not even my morning run. Um, but, but now if that's what I can get in, that's what I get. So I get something in and, and that's the the trade off I make. And, and you know, it's just, and, and similarly with career and family, we're all balancing those puzzle pieces and we just have, you, you, you can't do everything. You have to choose which, which options are going to be good. But I think it's perfectly compatible with a long and healthy life to continue to be active, to even to have serious, to have competitive goals, but just to be realistic about, um, you, you know, it, in some sense for me, the race is now about how much can I get out of myself today? Given my current life context, given the training I've been able to do, as opposed to measuring myself against what I what I could do 20 years ago. Right. And you mentioned that you wanted to be a better journalist. I bet these go hand in hand. You know, all the great writers like to walk and think. Is it the same thing? Does the same thing apply to when you're running? It it is interesting. I, I will say this. I I um, and this isn't a judgment, but just a, a statement of a fact is I don't run with headphones because for me, 
that time is uh, when I'm out there alone with my thoughts is I think very important both for my sort of mental equilibrium, but also for for problems that I'm working on. And what I it's interesting what I what I found is let's say I'm I'm stuck on, on a story I'm working on. If I go out and say okay, I need to figure out what I'm going to do in this next section, or I need to figure out what the 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 first paragraph of this article is going to be. I almost never come back from my run with the answer to that question. Mm-hmm. But if I just sort of go out and and let my mind wander, I'll often come back with the answer to a different question that I've been working on in the background. So I think I think you know the I think a lot of people have experienced their mind. Your mind is constantly working on all sorts of different problems in the background, and if you give it an opportunity to just sort of roam free, then often it'll come up with some answers when you least expect it. And so I I use that running time as a, as a time to let my mind wander, even though I would enjoy listening to music or podcasts, I just feel like that's a, a it's a useful protected time for me to to just you look at the scenery and let my mind go where it wants to. Yeah, I find the same thing. It's like you have to create that, that room for negative space for your mind. Yeah, and I, and you know that's a it's that's it's a inter- really interesting topic in that I I think it's true on a day to day basis, and I, and I think it maybe is also true. On a longer term basis, I know I, I, I recently read David Epstein's uh, recent book, Range, mm-hmm. uh, Why Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialist World, I think is the title, where he talks about, you know, pursuing different, uh, how it's ben- beneficial not to just do the same thing over and over again, and, and how you often get benefits from doing different things. And one of the things he's, he has said uh, is, uh, or some of the people he interviewed said is, it's useful, you know, if you finish one big project, it's useful to just have some dead time, both you know, from day to day and month to month and and week, you know, year to year. Even give yourself some time where you're just letting your mind wander, where you have a chance to figure out what the next project you want to tackle is. Which is kind of like I, I'm taking that as a, uh, um, I'm taking that advice to heart in this in the sense that my last book came out in early 2018, and I sort of thought, well, I'll have my next book topic sewn up by the end of 2018. And here we are getting towards the end of 2019, and I still don't know what the topic is, but I'm I'm sort of having faith that letting giving myself room to explore uh, gets that's giving myself some of that negative space, as you said, mm-hmm. uh, is going to result in eventually I'm going to come up with a better idea than if I just forced it and sort of sat down and made myself write down 50 different ideas for a book and then picked one and, and went out to the races. Yeah, for sure. It's it's interesting that you said you don't like to run with headphones in because a lot of people, I think, that quietude or that silence is not enough motivation for them to, you know, reach those PRs or to run harder. Yeah, I mean, it's it, and, and music can mean a lot of different things to different people. For me, I mean, the way I listen to music is that it, I generally listen to it. It's hard for me to just have it in the background. Uh, if, if it's music I like, I'm, I'm listening to it. And so then my mind is engaged with that and is not doing anything else. But but different people have different relationships to with the music they listen to and and uh, going back to what we said earlier, it's it's n equals one and I'm not uh, I'm not trying to prescribe this for everyone else. But but certainly for me, I've found that's the best way. Mm-hmm. Would you equate running as your meditation practice? Yeah, this is a <laughs> this is kind of a hot button controversial topic, like because so many people, including me, kind of say oh, running is my meditation. It's it's my time to clear my mind of of all the sort of noise that's going on in it. And, and it feels to me like a meditation, but it, you know, if you do talk to experts in meditation, uh, s- some of them kind of bristle at that. They'll say, you know, running is running and meditation is meditation. They're both good, but they're different things. And so I, I sort of defer on the technical definition, but to me, it feels like what I get out of running mentally is very similar to what a lot of people say they get out of meditation. 
Yeah, I would find it fascinating. Maybe they should do a study where, you know, sometimes they'll have these Zen monks go through like MRI scanners and they'll have outside stimuli try to watch how it affects their brain. And it shows that, you know, their 20, 40 years plus of meditation practice enables them to like go to a state of compassion instead of like anger and frustration in their brain like most people would. I wonder if that would be something similar with runners. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I, I mean, certainly, and you know, they see changes in the structure of the brain after years of meditation. And I, I would bet similar things happen with running in terms of the specific reactions, maybe for something like to respond with compassion, maybe that's something you have to actually specifically practice. So, uh, you, you know, going back to what I was saying before, it's like, running is running and meditation is meditation. They have some, some, I think some overlap, but, but I'm sure there's also some differences. Cool. What would you say is the most beautiful place you've ever trained? Ooh, that's an interesting one. I, I spent a month training in the French Alps once in, in Aix-les-Bains on a, with a, a national team training camp. And it's pretty hard to beat that in the, being in the mountains, being able to run around, you know, Alpine lakes and then come back to your, the hotel where there's, you know, fancy French cooking waiting for you mm -hmm. for dinner. So, uh, yeah, that was pretty beautiful. I also spent about six months in Canberra, Australia and everyone in Australia, everybody, almost all the big cities are on the ocean. Um, everybody loves, uh, for under, uh, you know, understandably they love the beach. The only big town of any note that's on the inland is the capital Canberra. And, uh, I, I, for whatever reason, so everyone, everyone in Australia laughs and makes fun of Canberra, but we loved our time there and it's amazing parks and dirt trails and dirt roads. And we'd be running with, you know, dozens of kangaroos every morning. So I, I got in pretty good shape there. And I, you know, I met some good, often what, what really makes a training place great sometimes isn't so much the scenery as it is the people you're with. And so I, I made a couple good friends there to run with and, uh, and I really enjoyed my time there. Yeah. Talk to me about the importance of having that culture. Like, cause I work in the fire service and you know, people would just log miles and miles and miles on the treadmill and then they'll go out and they'll all train and do these big runs together. I think it's just so important. Yeah. I mean that the power of the group is something I've thought a lot about. Um, you know, I come from a competitive track and cross country background. So through high school and university, I was always training with teams. You know, every day I'd meet the same guys and we'd go out and do our workouts together and you, you really bond and, 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 uh, get a sort of sense of collective importance going and, and loyalty. And, you know, you, you show up to practice cause you're not going to let your, your teammates down. And so when you move outside of that team environment, all of a sudden there's a, there's a bit of a void. Um, it's like, Oh, I'm only doing, you know, if I don't show up today, nobody cares. There's nobody waiting for me. So one thing that I've done here in Toronto is, really, really worked hard to maintain a Saturday morning training group. And, you know, like I like meeting people for longer runs, but I, I find it's even more, uh, I get more bang for my buck to meet them for some of the hard workouts. So every Saturday morning we do, uh, we meet at, uh, a cemetery in Toronto called Mount Pleasant Cemetery. And we do either 5k or four miles or sometimes a little longer at a relatively hard pace. It's a tempo run, although, you know, tempo run is one of those words that has various meanings. Basically, a, it's a threshold run where we're running not as not as hard as we can, but but pretty hard. And all of us now have, you know, we have jobs and maybe some of us have kids and uh, we're just not in the same, you know, it used to be that run 20 years ago, we used to do that run, you know, Saturday morning was, of course we were going to be there Saturday morning because it's the most important thing in our lives. Now it takes a real deliberate 
effort to say, let's keep Saturday mornings free. No, we're not making any other plans. We're going to, if we're going out of town, we're going to go out of town at noon on Saturday instead of at, you know, Friday night because we want to be there for the temple run because then we get to see our friends and, uh, cause both my wife and I go where there's a men's and a women's group and, and, uh, you know, be part of that collective feeling of, Hey, let's go and have fun by going out and wailing and pushing our limits and making that a, a, a weekly ritual. Yeah, that's beautiful. And it, be, it definitely beats, you know, getting together and just having a bunch of beers. You can actually connect. hundred percent. I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm all in favor of all social gatherings, but, but this is the way we choose to do it. And it's, it's, uh, you know, very occasionally we'll, that the say the tempo group will get together and have a dinner or something like that. But I would say we, we get more, you know, camaraderie and more, you know, knowledge about each other on those runs than we would anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Now switching gears here, I just wanted to get a little bit more focused on training. Just so talk to me about the importance of having a coach. Yeah. So this is a, this is a question where I, I wouldn't answer with any absolutes. I don't think anyone has to have a coach, but I think, uh, a lot of people who don't have a coach don't realize how much they don't know. And so, um, I, I think for, for a lot of people, if you haven't come through a, a system where you've been coached or been part of teams, then you might underestimate how much you can get out of uh, a coach. So for me in running, for example, I don't have a coach right now, but I spent 20 or 25 years being coached by, I was lucky enough to have four or five really good coaches. So I've seen different perspectives, um, have a lot of knowledge now about what a coach can give. Now, even now, you, you might say, for, from a running perspective, I know what I can write, write out the workouts. That's no problem. But coaches do more than that. Coaches uh, provide an outside eye on how your training is going can, and can probably tell you before you realize it if you're overtrained, if you're overtired, or if you're you know, holding back and not really giving yourself uh, a lot. So I think there's the, there's the two aspects. There's the knowledge, which uh, if you don't have, it's crucial. Uh, but if you do have, maybe you can do without. And then there's the the coach athlete or the coach client relationship, and getting that external perspective, that honest honest eye that's outside of your head on you. And both those things, I think, can be really valuable. Yeah, I think it's hard for people to more than just holding up a mirror and showing you where your weak points are, but they're just a little bit more honest than you are willing to be with yourself. Yeah, you know, if if your coach never says anything that challenges you, then you're maybe not going to. Uh, grow as much than it, as if you, I, you know, coaches can be very positive while still helping you to understand where there are places you can improve. Yeah. And I mean, you're ultimately accountable for reaching your goals, but they can keep you on track. Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, and I think the role of a coach can vary in different activities, but the, you know, often coaches can also connect you with other people to train with. And, and, uh, so going back to what we were saying about being part of a group. So there's, there, there's a whole bunch of different things that can fit together to help you. And, and you know, different people have different personalities. And, and uh, so, you know, finding a coach who, who works with you and who, who understands what you need is, is also important. Mm-hmm. Now, I think a lot of this is dependent on someone's goals and their, their health goals in general. But what's your opinion on steady state versus high intensity interval training or sprints? Yeah, so you know, I have a I have a sort of default answer that I use to answer all controversial questions in exercise science, and that is, I think they're both great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, I will say, from a running perspective, um, uh, the the standard the standard training routine for a, a high performance uh, distance runner 
these days is, you know, for anything from a miler to a marathoner would be something like, uh, if you're, I mean, you're running at least six or seven days a week, two to three of those days would be high intensity, short, high intensity intervals. Uh, and maybe one of those days would be in particular, like, uh, almost a sprint workout. And maybe three of those days would be long or two or three of those days. You'd have long, slow, relaxed jogging. One of those days you might have a sustained medium effort. And one of those days you might have a long run. So it's like you, you name a workout type and the average high intent, the average high performance, uh, long distance runner would be doing whatever workout you name. They're, they're doing that at least once a week. So it's, it's a question of variety. And so now what happened, I think when the sort of aerobics boom of the seventies started, um, the translation to the public uh, in terms of trying to make it easiest for people to to uh, adhere to exercise programs was that they focused on just go out and do long, steady, easy runs. And they didn't try and get people to do interval workouts because interval high-intensity interval workouts because they're hard. Now, high-performance athletes were still doing them. Uh, so so when in the early 2000s when there was this, this sort of pushback saying, you know what, you can do Tabatas or you can do, uh, you know, high-intensity sprint workouts, it's a miracle, it's a new thing. All, all the runners were looking around saying, what do you mean? We've been doing those since Roger Bannister in the 1950s. He was doing 10 by 400, mm -hmm. uh, 10 by 400 meters uh, to break the four-minute mile. So it was this disconnect between what athletes were doing and what the sort of fitness population was doing. Now, the problem is, again, as what happens in all these debates, is the pendulum often swings from one extreme, it swings right over to the other without stopping in the middle. So then there are the people saying, you should only do intervals. There, you know, if you do, uh, you know, long, steady uh, aerobic efforts, you're going to die or you're not, or, or it's just not going to be as good. It's not going to, you're not going to, it's not as effective. And the problem with those, and, and they'd say, look, here's a study that shows that you, you can get the same benefits out of a uh, short interval workout as you can from a long steady state workout. The problem with those workouts is, or those studies is that they're, they're comparing what if you only do workout A versus you only do workout B, then yeah, and it, you know, if, if that's the choice, then interval workout is going to be more bang for your buck because frankly, they're harder. Right. But in reality, it's ne the, the choice is never, you have to do only one or the other. If you do both, you're going to get slightly different adaptations or, or actually not just slightly, you're going to get different forms of adaptation and together you're going to end up better farther ahead than you would otherwise be and moreover you're going to have variety in your training program which is going to make it more interesting and more tolerable so that's you know that's my general bird's eye take is that they're they're both useful and they can both complement each other i think that's a great take now i'm just curious i'm not one for running i used to like to jog but now i just enjoy you know long walks in nature is that going to contribute to my you know aerobic base and still increase my you know my performance i mean look I, i'm a huge fan of long walks especially in nature um, they're, they're going to help your fitness or they are not going to be the same as, as getting your heart rate up unless you're, you know, walking at a, at a very brisk pace. Mm -hmm. So they're going to support your health. They're going to support your metabolism. Um, it, 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 you're not going to then show up at the local 10 K and be able to run, uh, as well as if you had actually done some longer runs. So that's okay. Like, again, like you said, it depends on goals. Um, but, but it's, yeah, the, there's a sort of, uh, a sliding scale of, of intensity and, and, uh, for most people walking is, is good, but it's not gonna, it's, I would think of it more as 
uh, overall health maintenance than improving aerobic fitness directly. Mm-hmm. And when we're talking about cardio, you said, like you said, the intensity does matter. What are your thoughts on staying in the fat burning zone when you're running as far as the Mapitone number of keeping your heart rate below 180 minus your age? Yeah, I mean, I I think some of the, I, I get hung up a little bit on some of the nomenclature, like the fat burning zone. I, I, I mean, I think that's a, um, you know, if so if if you keep your intensity low, you're burning mostly fat, but your your intensity is low, so the total amount of calories you're burning is is much lower. You go a little faster, you may burn a higher a lower percentage of fat, but if you're burning twice as many calories, you're actually burning more fat overall. And and so I and so I, I don't tend to think that that's something that I would I don't I don't tend to worry about that. That if you go a little too fast, I think that for me it's a more practical thing. If you go too fast on your easy long runs, then they're no longer easy long runs; they're hard. And you're not going to be able to go as far. You're not, and you're going to not going to be able to recover as well. And you're going to be tired out. So, um, so that sort of constrains how much you're able to do. So, that, in, in a sense, that's what the reason, or, or one reason that endurance athletes have evolved to be doing a mix of long, slow stuff and and hot and short, high intensity stuff is you're trying to balance. You you get benefits from being out there for a long time, and you get benefits from going really hard. And so by doing slow stuff, you know, and you could call it the fat burning zone or below the mafetone number or whatever you want, you, you, you enable yourself to accumulate a long time. You, it's easy enough you could stay out there for a long time. And by doing short, sharp stuff, you get the intensity. If you go in that middle zone where you're kind of going pretty hard but not that hard, then you kind of, you're not, you're not really getting the full benefits of high intensity sprinting but, and you're also not really getting the full benefits of staying out there for a long time because you can't, because you're going too hard. You, you, you find that after half an hour, you're like, whoa, that's too hard. I need to stop. Right. So, so I think, I think in practical purposes, it, it's useful to, when you're going easy, keep it easy. And when you're going hard, going hard. I, I don't know that there's necessarily a sort of magic physiological thing that's going on. I think it's more just a practical way of making sure you get both ends of the spectrum. Right, but if you are training at those higher heart rates for too long, too often, that can contribute to overstressing the body and the over the fight or flight response. Yeah, yeah, and and I mean, again, you can you can look at it from the perspective of of stress hormones and things like that, or you can look at it from the you know just from a more subjective way. You can say, man, that was really hard. And if you if you do a high intensity interval workout and then you try to get do it again the next day, and then you do try to do it again the next day. You're not gonna. You're gonna be get, find yourself getting slower rather than faster. Your body's not gonna be able to adapt. It's. It, you're just pushing yourself beyond your limits. So. So it's a question of knowing your limits. And like you said, you, you end up in this sort of constant state of stress. You're not. Your body's not gonna be adapting. Mm-hmm. Now, do you try to incorporate strength training? I do. I. I, I try. I, I. I'm not very successful at it. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I, you know. So it's like. It's sort of funny because when you know. I, I enjoy running so much, and when other people are telling me I need to get in that running habit, I'm like, what? Just run. Just mm-hmm. like, what's 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 hard about that? Get up in the morning and run. You know, so it's kind of the reverse for me with strength training. I I'm very aware of how important it is for me to to do some strength training, especially as I get older, to make sure I'm maintaining my mu- my muscle mass and things like that. Um, I I struggle with it a bit because despite how important it is, I just don't enjoy it as much as as. Uh, as going out for a run or doing other things. So one thing I've done in the last three or four years is I've kind of, uh, uh, 
re-engage with some of the sports I used to play when I was younger. So I now play pickup basketball every Friday nights and I play tennis on Tuesday afternoons with a friend of mine and I do some rock climbing. And so these are ways of engaging my whole body and particularly my upper body, which doesn't get engaged when I run. So I'm hoping that's going to do a little bit, but I also try to do a, a little bit of a full body circuit on an outdoor gym near me uh, when, when I, before runs sometimes. So there's a playground that has, you know, pull up bars and, and dip bars and things like that, parallel bars. And so I, and, and step and boxes for step ups and, and stuff like that. So I try and go and do a sort of 15 minute routine uh, in theory twice a week, but in practice, it's been a little less than that lately. Yeah, as you can tell, I'm just a little concerned about overtraining and the chronic cardio sessions, especially for guys who are, you know, working shift work or first responders who are, a lot of times they are tired and coming off duty, but they still want to get these long runs in. Um, you know, how can they li- better listen to their body and respect the signals that they're getting and, and know that they need a rest day? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And I think, I think one of the things you just said that's really important is understanding the role of, uh, you know, 24 seven, the, the other stresses in your life, occupational and, and also personal and, and yeah, shift work, like sleep changes in sleep. So it's like, it may be that there's a person who can easily handle going out and running an hour a day, six days a week. Um, and for someone who's, who's fit and used to running, that's, that's, that's no big deal. But if you add in, oh yeah, by the way, you're going to be doing shift work. It's going to be at different times each day. You're going to be getting home sometimes very late. You're going to be doing physical work. Uh, that's going to add into your stress, all of a sudden that's an unsustainable stress. And so trying to figure out what the number is, what, you know, we, we all wish there was a number we could look at that could say, oh, and, and, you know, heart rate variability is an example. People, people really want to be able to say, um, if your heart rate variability is above such a threshold or whatever, that means you need a rest day today. Mm -hmm. And, and, and some of those indicators are, are a little bit useful, but none of them are can can quite figure out the whole story. So I don't think there's anything more sensitive than really starting to learn to pay attention to the signals you're getting from your body. That if you're feeling worse, steadily worse, that's a sign you need to back off a little bit. And we often interpret that the wrong way. It's like, oh man, I went out for my run today and I I was really dragging my feet. I, I must be getting out of shape. I need to train more. And often it's the opposite. It's, I was really dragging today. I'm giving my body more than it could handle. And tomorrow I should take a day off or tomorrow I should just go for a walk. So uh, yeah, I, I, I wish there was a, an objective way of figuring that out, but I think it's something that people have to, I, right now, at least I don't think the technology is good enough to really give that answer. And I think it's a question of understanding what our limits are and maybe understanding the, some of the alternatives, like you said, that, you know what, if you've, if you've come back from a a long shift and you want to get out for your long run and you're worried that you're going to get be, be losing fitness if you don't get in a long uh, session, well, there are alternatives, you know, like high intensity intervals that can, and maybe you can get through that in a much shorter time and, and you'll end up being able to get more sleep and get still get some of that fitness boost so you're not worried about losing your fitness. Yeah, or maybe even just some active recovery. But also, I'm glad you brought up heart rate variability because I think it is, it might not be perfect, but it's as close as we can get right now to giving us real-time data on whether or not we need to take it easy or it's okay to train hard. Yeah, I think it's 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 an interesting area of research. I guess what, what I would say, what I would caution against is outsourcing your decision to that that machine mm-hmm. to, to saying that's going to be what decides if I go or don't go today. Instead, I would say that's a useful 
piece of data to add to a few other pieces of data, uh, including what have I done over the last three days? Should, you know, should I, you know, the decision of to train or not to train, you, you should be also factoring in, like, look at your training log. Um, did, have you trained 20% more this week than you did last week? If so, that's, that's a pretty good sign. How do you feel? Do you feel great? Well, then, you know, maybe it's okay. Do you feel like crap? Uh, okay, well, that's a, that's a warning sign. So then you're going to integrate all these different things into your overall decision making. So so you're you're paying attention to the heart rate variability, but you're not letting it be the boss because there's you know you you will inevitably find people who are like, man, I ran a marathon yesterday, and this morning I woke up and my heart rate variability says I should be good for a hard workout. It's just totally like for whatever reason the body is responding in a funny way, and and so you you don't want to just uh, blindly accept what it says. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that you should align your workouts with your energy levels. Yeah, and you know that's sure that's easier said than done, right? Like because we all like to 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 trick ourselves, but yeah, do it. Yeah, yeah. What's going on in your life? Be honest about that. Be honest about how you feel, and then you feel can add in some extra data from places like heart rate variability. That can help, and and in a sense, one of the best things I think heart rate variability can do is you wake up in the morning, you feel like crap. And you're asking yourself, does this mean I need a day off or am I just being lazy? I need to push through it. Heart rate variability maybe confirms what you're already feeling. You look at it and say, no, it's right. it's true. I'm not just kidding myself. I really do need a break. Right. And this could be a great thing for, you know, say the fire academy or fire departments where they get to work and they check their HRV. And if it's low, maybe that means you shouldn't train that hard because if you do get a fire or something like that, you might become overstressed from overexertion. Yeah, it can be, a, you know, a great little uh predictor that helps you make sure that you're you're ready to go when you need to be ready to go. Mm -hmm. So what other changes have you noticed throughout your career? Is there any difference in the way that you fuel now for performance? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, you know, as you know, there's been uh, <laughs> uh, lots of debate and lots of controversy in the last decade or so about uh, optimal fueling. Um, again, I, I tend to be, I'm just a bit of a, a waffler. I, I, I tend to, and I, and I don't mean that I eat, eat a lot of waffles. I mean that I <laughs> Uh, that I tend to see the the merits in 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 lots of different approaches in different contexts. Personally, I, I still eat a diet that's if I if I had to pigeonhole it, which I don't I mean I don't consciously follow any particular diet, but it, it probably looks most like a Mediterranean diet. You know, lots of fish, lots of uh, fresh vegetables, leafy green vegetables, salads, and uh, you know, meat uh, a few times a week, but also. Uh, you know, some heavy emphasis, emphasis on fruit and vegetables. Um, but, you know, I mean, the, look, the, the big controversy, obviously, in the last sort of five, 10 years has been low-carb, high-fat diets. Um, in the sports world, I would say uh, it's uh, if you go to the Olympics, there's very, very few people who are following a diet like that. And the, the specific demands of most Olympic events uh, maybe aren't a great fit if you're trying to compete at the highest level. But if you look at longer, you know, if you look in the ultra run community, uh, there, a lot of people are following low carb, high fat diets. And the, the constraints on a, if you're an ultra runner are quite different because you're out there for so longer, so much longer that first of all, you're not worried about, uh, you know, anaerobic sprinting ability. And second of all, it's a real benefit not to have to be taking in a lot of extra, uh, food or carbohydrates during a run. So then it, becomes an advantage. So I think it really depends. And then there's a difference between, are you trying to compete? Or are you just trying to uh, live a healthy lifestyle? And so 
there's there's all these different uh, factors that may that may go into what diet you end up deciding is optimal for you. Right now, you mentioned these guys who are going out there and trying to be fat adapted when they're running and less reliant on fuel. The guys who aren't and they're more reliant on like a sugar burning metabolism. What are they fueling with while they're running? Yeah, while they're running, they're they're generally fueling with with pretty simple sugars. Um, you know, it depend again, it depends on the if if you're talking about a marathon, they're 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 taking you know, sports drinks and, and sports gels. And these are things that I think uh, we would both agree are, are not like, uh, it's not like part of a healthy diet or anything like that, mm -hmm. but it's something that that's, uh, in a very specific context. If you're running, you know, five minute miles for 26 miles, your body is in a, a very specific state, uh, that, that is going to just burn up fuel as quickly, as quickly as you can get it. And I think, um, you know, I would say, if I see a kid at the playground playing basketball and drinking Gatorade, I think, man, that is just a, a horrible thing where this kid has been misled by some terrible advertising. He does not need to be drinking Gatorade while playing basketball. Mm -hmm. But if I, if I see a marathoner, you know, an elite marathoner, uh, you know, taking a few gulps of Gatorade in the middle of a marathon, then I, I think of that in this, you know, as a, that's just something you do for performance. At the, uh, and it's not a, it's, it's kind of a different context. Yeah, and I'm I'm no runner, but to me it seems like you know after reading you know Dr. Jeff Volek's book on the art and science of low carbohydrate you know performance, it seems like these keto adapted runners are finding tremendous benefit in just being able to upregulate those fat burning genes and run off of ketones. Yeah, I read Jeff's book too, and and uh, I, I I think I found the book very interesting, but I, I think if you want to know how how what is successful or what works for high performance running you know you can look at the at what people do who actually are making in the olympics and uh so far and again there's a big difference between running hard for two hours like elite marathoners do and you know going out for a 12-hour ultra run but for the people who are running elite level marathoners uh i'm aware of almost none who who are doing anything other than the conventional sports science and if you look there have been studies of kenyan and so if you look at the top 1,000 marathoners in history, something like 900, more than 900 of them are either from Kenya and Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. And there have been studies of the diet of Kenyan and Mar Ethiopian marathoners, and it's like 60% to 80% carbohydrate, and like 20% of that comes from the sugar they put in their tea and their porridge. So it's not necessarily what I would think of as a super healthy diet, but um, I think the anecdotes about, yes, it's possible. I guess I'll put it this way. 10 years ago, if you'd asked me, is it possible to run a good marathon on a low-carb, high-fat diet, I would have said, no, you're crazy. And the science from people like Jeff Wolock and others has come a long way, as well, and, and so has the practice of people doing it. And now I've, I've, it's one of those areas where I've had to say, wow, I have to change my opinion because lots of people are living you know, happily and running good marathons and good ultra-marathons on a low-carb, high-fat diet. But to go back to that distinction between is this something you can do healthily and happily or can you compete? Can you get to the very best of what your body is capable of? And my sense right now is that for a marathon at least and anything shorter, uh, you, you can't compete at an Olympic level uh, on that diet. Right. So, so does that mean that guys like Zach Bitter, you know, who just hit the world record, who's basically a fat-fueled animal-based eater is just the exception? Uh, not necessarily, but Zach is not an, a world-class marathoner. He's a world-class ultra runner, and it's it's a and it's a different that's a different kettle of fish. Hundred K is 
is uh, four, you know, four times longer than a marathon. Mm -hmm. So Zach's showing what can be done in, in ultra endurance events, but the marathon is a different kettle of fish. So maybe the more intense stuff like marathons. Yeah. I would say marathon and down marathon and shorter. Uh, doesn't mean you can't run a good, you can't run a good marathon or, and be happy and healthy, but you're not going to make the Olympics. Um, but ultra endurance, the, the, so the, when you're talking about hundred K, it's a different set of constraints, uh, cause it's, it, fueling becomes a different challenge. And so, uh, and your, your reliance, if you're running a marathon at an elite level, you're right close to your lactate threshold. You're very close to needing to rely on anaerobic energy sources. So, um, yeah, it, it, it at a certain point it becomes a, a sort of, uh, uh, a, a debate where you're you're making very fine differences between well, is it a marathon or ultra marathon, or is it elite mm. competitive or just competitive? And you know, so it just depends on the context. And but but I think the the good takeaway message f from my perspective is that it's possible to be healthy and happy and to run or compete in athletic events with a variety of different dietary approaches. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me a little bit about the hydration debate. What is the science really saying? <laughs> Whoa, you're, uh, you're hitting the controversial topics. Um, yeah, I guess the, the, you know, the big debate is, should you just drink to thirst? I mean, we've been doing it for millennia. It's, it's worked fine. Um, or do you need to have some sort of super sophisticated plan where you're taking a special drink that has, you know, all sorts of fancy chemicals that I've never heard of that are supposed to uh, magically replace your sweat? And, you know, the traditional orthodoxy was, you know, thirst doesn't is not good enough. By the time you notice you're thirsty, you're already dehydrated and you're going to slow down. So what I, my general perspective on this is that the science that suggested that dehydration is this terrible thing um, was far overblown and, and kind of overinterpreted. And that in, in most contexts, I mean, certainly what I do is I drink when I'm thirsty and in the vast majority of contexts. Uh, when I'm training, I go out for a two-hour run. I don't bring any water with me because if I don't, you know, and I don't, I live in Canada. I don't live in Texas, so that's one thing to bear in mind. But I go out for a summer run. I get back and I'm thirsty and I've sweated a lot. And then I drink some water and I'm, you know, I'm back to normal. Like it's it's fine to be thirsty. And in fact, it may even be a part of getting fit is to occasionally be thirsty. Uh, it sort of tells your body to adapt. Um, I'm I don't go all the way over to the extreme where Tim Noakes and others have gone to say that. You should only ever drink water, and it's only uh, only drink when you're thirsty. Because the thing is, I mean, there's a couple of reasons that I that I think sometimes it's good to have a hydration plan and, and think a little more carefully about it. What, one is that, let's say you're running a marathon, and I tell you, just drink when you're thirsty. Well, you might get to the five-mile mark and say, okay, I'm thirsty. Well, guess what? You can't drink right then because the next water stop isn't for another couple miles. Mm -hmm. So... You, you you inevitably have to do a little bit of planning because you're not going to be able to just respond to thirst instantly if you're in a context like a marathon where you don't have water whenever you want it. And the other thing is, I so let's say I'm confident that evolution has equipped me with this thirst sensation that will warn me if I'm running low on fluid. I think that's true, but I think one of the ways that evolution has equipped me to, to deal with being thirsty is to make exercise feel harder. If I'm starting to get dehydrated, then I'm going to get thirsty. And I think there's another another thing that happens, is, which is that I have a desire to slow down uh, because I don't, you know, you, my body is telling me, hey, listen, you're, you're starting to run low on fuel and or fluid. So let's just, you know, not push too hard to make sure we don't run into trouble. Well, if you're competing in a marathon, 
you don't want to have a feeling that you're that it, that it's getting harder to run because that's going to make you slow down. Mm -hmm. So in that context, drinking a little ahead of thirst or being a little more aggressive in your hydration might help you avoid this sort of feeling that makes you want to run more slowly. So I, I, that, that's sort of a uh, to me that's the the one percent of situations when I'm like, okay, yeah, you need to think carefully about how much you need to drink and be aware of trying to drink more than you might initially want. 99% of situations, uh, you know, including what, when I'm exercising or when I'm just, you know, uh, hanging around in my office, if I'm thirsty, I drink. If I'm not, I don't, I don't worry about it. Yeah. Are you adding any minerals? Are you adding salt to your water in the morning or drink a mineral water throughout the day? No, no. I, I, yeah. I mean, my diet has plenty of salt in it. I don't have any, I, I think, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not of the, the school who thinks that, uh, I, so I, I think the warnings about eating too much salt are probably a little overblown for 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 uh, most people. But I still think I get plenty of salt through my diet. And so the, so again, it would be different if I was out maybe exercising for eight hours at, continuously or something like that, mm -hmm. when I'm not going to be having a meal a meal in the middle and I'm going to be sweating continuously. That's different. But if I'm only exercising for a few hours at a time, then um, yeah, the, the the chances of me running low on salt, uh, given how much I like salty foods is, is, is low. So it's not, and, and same with like sugar, like, you know, sports drinks. I don't tend to eat those unless there's a very specific context. I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm generally pretty happy with water. Yeah, for sure. So what are your thoughts on recovery? Do you have any f favorite tips or techniques? Yeah, I guess tip number one would be, there's a book that came out earlier this year by a science journalist named Chris, Christia Schwanden, uh, called good to go. I think the subtitle is something along the lines of the strange science of athletic recovery and what the athlete and all of us can learn or something like that, but good to go by Christia Schwann that, that, that tries to look at the science of, of recovery. And you know what, while we're, while we're discussing this, I, I, I saw a talk by Christy just the other day. And, uh, so her basic, you know, one of the things she says is that, um, a lot of the sort of fancy mumbo jumbo about recovery is it doesn't really do anything. You know, you don't need to pay thousands of dollars for a cryosana or anything, and and but a lot of those things work because uh, you know and ice baths and things like that. A lot of things work maybe not because they have some sort of magic anti-inflammatory properties, but but because they force you to take a pause, force you to relax, put your feet up, and and just uh, let give your body a chance to recover on its own. Because one of her big points is the stress of training, and we were talking about this before. The stress of training is not fundamentally different from the stress of daily life. The stress of whatever else is going on with your work and your relationships and so on. And your body needs a break from stress. And if you're, if you're going to spend 20 minutes getting a massage or an hour, you know, or in an ice bath or something, that's giving yourself a chance to get away from stress as opposed to just finishing your workout and rushing straight up to do your taxes. So just giving yourself a break. So she boiled down her three rules of recovery that I, I wrote these down at her talk. She said, number one is sleep. If you, you know, if you're not getting enough sleep, then you're kidding yourself. You're wasting your time wearing compression socks and uh, getting, uh, you know, whatever other recovery, fancy recovery technology if you're not getting enough sleep. Second of all, manage the stress in your life. So, uh, and that means being aware. Like you said, if you've just come off a long shift, then your workout plans should be different than if you're if you've been fresh and just lying around all day. And third, have a daily relaxation ritual. Find some way, whether it's that you like to sit in the ice bath after your workout or whether it's that you like to have a glass of wine after dinner and watch the sunset. That's her daily relaxation ritual. And that gives your, give your mind and body a chance to sort of unwind. 
And then her bonus rules are take a rest day periodically, like say once a week or whatever, and also learn to read your body. This goes back to what we were saying about HRV. It's a useful tool. It's a useful adjunct, but it doesn't take away your responsibility to listen to what your body's telling you. Mm -hmm. Now, before we got started, we were kind of talking about just the importance of being out in nature. How has this exercise routine of yours and also writing for Outdoor Magazine kind of improved your relationship with just being outside? Yeah, you know, it's 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 something I didn't necessarily twig onto. You know, I always knew that my workouts and my you know daily runs and things like that made me feel better, uh, made me feel healthier and happier and all those sorts of things. But I I sort of attributed it mostly to the exercise. Um, but over time, I've realized that actually, you know, if I you know if I'm traveling somewhere and I do it in a, in a I do my workout on a treadmill or something like that, it's not the same for me. And and even if uh, you know when I moved back to Toronto, so maybe I guess six six years ago, I was living downtown for the first year, and so my daily runs were on crowded streets with with traffic and and pollution and uh, concrete, and you know it was still I enjoyed it, but it wasn't the same. And when I moved back out to the what, to where I'm living now, about five years ago, where I can run along a nice quiet river valley, all of a sudden I was like, oh man, this is a total difference. So I read a book, uh, I, I started reading up a little bit about that. There's a book called The Nature Fix by Florence Williams, which I would uh, highly recommend that talks about that it's not just in your head, the way the way that our brains and bodies respond to being in you know, green spaces or around water is really powerful and changes our stress response. And so I've become much more aware of the potential benefits of things like that. So one thing I did after I read this book, uh, The Nature Fix last summer, and one of the first things I did was I went and bought a used secondhand kayak because I thought, you know, I live a block and a half from a river and that river is beautiful when you're out on the water. Why don't I just put a kayak in my garage and then now and then I can just sling it over my shoulder, walk down to the river and go for a half hour paddle. And you're on that water surrounded by trees and you forget that you're in the middle of a city. And, and that's just a way of kind of, it's, it's a kind of the escape from the stresses of life on steroids. It's cause it's just, you, it's, it's far more powerful than just taking a break, lying on the sofa and looking at the wall. Uh, you're, you're, there's something about the way, you know, the patterns in nature there, there's some really interesting research showing, you know, the way it captures your attention, you know, the leaves blowing in the breeze or the sound of birds or, or, or water that just, it doesn't demand your attention like a honking horn, but it doesn't require any focus. You just kind of wander along, letting your mind be grabbed by whatever's in the corner of your eye. Right. And I think for people like me, like I'm in Columbus, Ohio, where we don't really have that um, proximity to nature. So for a lot of people, they, they'll just think that, you know, I can't do anything then, you know, like uh, if I can't go to the mountains or to the ocean, then there's, there's no point, you know, I live in the city, but like you said, just going to the river, doing anything to reconnect with water or trees or anything is worth it. Yeah. There's, I, I mean, I'll, I'll put a shout out for, there was a great study done here in Toronto about four or five years ago that looked at the effect of city trees just on on blocks so they they had a database of like 600,000 where all 600,000 trees in Toronto were and they mapped it onto uh, a record of uh, health records to find out what does it matter if you have trees on your block and they found that every I can't remember the exact numbers but it was something along the lines of for every 10 additional 10 trees on a block on a block you'd have a, a chance you know it was you know, the health effects would be the equivalent of you know, increasing the income by $7,000 a year or something, or adding one and a half years of life expectancy. Like there was something really powerful about just having nice trees on a block. So yeah, you can, you can go to a city park, you can just go to a nice leafy avenue. Uh, but if you can find some place 
that allows you to, to sort of just get away from traffic for a little bit and, and uh, reconnect. I think that's really powerful. Oh, so powerful. Now, just a few more questions for you. Have there, any, have there been any surprising discoveries in exercise science recently? Huh, that's an interesting question. I, I would say there haven't been any like super shocks. Everything is, science is very incremental for the most part. And usually when there's a surprise discovery, it's followed, you know, six months later by, oh, oh no, we made a mistake. <laughs> mm-hmm. Never mind. So yeah, you know, I, I think, I, I, I think in the last, in the, in the last recent time, there haven't been huge discoveries. I would say in the last 10 years in exercise science, the biggest shift has two biggest shifts maybe have been the, the low carb, high fat stuff. That's a big change, but also the, the, the sort of shift to, to believing that limits are the limit are, are limits of physical capacity are imposed by the brain, not by the body. That's been a real kind of change from what everyone was thinking in the nineties. Right. For sure. So if you could have a drink with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? <laughs> That's a, a, a very tough question. Obviously, uh, the, the first name that comes to mind for me is Roger Bannister, uh, the guy who break, broke the four-minute mile for the first time in 1954. Um, obviously, so I was a, a miler in my competitive days, so I have, I've always been very interested in his feats, and I reread his, I read his autobiography, you know, a dozen times or something like that. Um, aside from the fact that he broke the four-minute mile, which was amazing, I, I really liked his approach to to running and competition it was for him it was never an all-consuming activity he 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 competed while he was in medical school he broke the four minute mile he or was working as a as a trainee doctor um it was always a part of you know a harmonious part of his larger goals in life and after his running career he became a very prominent neurologist and made a lot of contributions so i re- and and it, so he sort of was almost against the professionalization of running the the fact that it, if you want to be a good runner it should be the only thing you should do and you should do it to the exclusion of everything else so i really i'd love to talk to him about his running experiences which were fantastic and then also his 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 larger thoughts about how running should fit into your life or how exercise or any sort of passion should fit into your life yeah, it seems like you both have a shared love for it so what are your daily non-negotiables things that no matter what will always be done yeah, well, there's another great example of things that shift over time. Again, you know, 20 years ago, um, I always got my run in. You know, like it, it, it didn't matter what else was going on, weddings, travel, anything. It was like everything else fit in around my run. And I, I don't, you know, when I look back at my 20s, I can't, I can't think of, I mean, I'm sure there were some examples, but I can't think of any examples where it was like, oh, I didn't get my run in today because I there were too, there was too much else going on or, or I was busy or whatever. It was like, it just it just wasn't possible. My brain didn't didn't recognize that that is a possibility. Uh, these days, it's a little different. I mean, I would say the focus from my run has shifted to like let's make sure I get outside at some point today and get my body moving. And maybe some days that's just I get outside and walk up the street and do some shopping and run some errands. Uh, usually, if that's going to be the case, I I say okay, well I'm going to put on my running clothes, put on my backpack, and I'm going to run. Uh, take the long route and run up to do those errands. So maybe it's a short run, not a very good one, <clears throat> but I'm going to get some some exercise in and I'm going to get my errands done and I'm going to get back in time to do everything else. So that sort of, that physical and outdoor time is 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 a non-negotiable for me. And, but I mean, the, the ultimate non-negotiable, I would say, is uh, making sure my family's okay and my kids are okay. So if there's some reason that I have to 
uh, spend extra time with my kids and I don't get my run in that day, life goes on. Absolutely. Awesome. So you write for outside sweat science column. Where else should people go to learn more about you and to keep up with what you're doing? Probably the easiest place to find me is on Twitter. My handle is sweat science, all one word. Um, that's where if I write a new article or see anything interesting, I post it and, uh, has links to, to various other things. I do have a website, alexhutchinson.net, where you can dig into the more uh, shady details of my background if you want. Very cool. So you have any parting words for my listeners? No, I think that, I think they're in good hands and just, uh, yeah, just think carefully about your priorities in life and take the time to make them, ha uh, happen. All right. Well, thanks again for doing this, Alex. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Nick. It's a really interesting conversation. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to support this podcast by subscribing on iTunes and leaving me a review, following me on social media at Prime Philosophy, and just by spreading the word. Jacoba.